Welcome to Redeemer Church. I'd like to read to you from the Psalms this morning. Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. I'm Beth, and I'm part of the praise team, and I volunteer here at church, and I'm so happy to see you this morning, and if you're a guest, welcome. We have a small gift for you out in the lobby, just a token to say thank you so much for being here this morning. And uh, we've been, this is our third week in our series, and we were taught about authentic worship the first week and how sometimes we're half-hearted, and that kind of hit a, hit a note with some of us. And then we learned some leadership lessons last week that also struck a chord with us, and I'm sure that Pastor Tim has some wonderful news for us this week. <laughs> I love how to the, be better. I love how, um, how uh, confident you are in that statement. Um, this series has been rough. Uh, it, you know, if you thought the Jeremiah series was challenging, this, this series in Malachi is, has been challenging for me personally. Um, as, as it's challenged had some challenging concepts. And, and while this, our, our community is, is, is kind of an ag community, not all of us are used to you know, the idea of having feces thrown in our face. And so, as we talked about last week. And so I understand this has been something that's been hard for us to, to kind of work through, but there have been some very deep concepts to work and wrestle with. And, and I hope that by being challenged with some of this, these topics that, that you found yourself growing through them. Today, we're going to continue in Malachi in chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about faithful giving because the, the Israelites have continued to stumble in their attempt to be faithful to God. And one of the things that they've done is they've continued to not give God their best. God says, look, you're not doing this right and we're going to look at what it means to be a faithful, faith, grace-filled giver. And this is not a make-you-feel-bad, um, you-got-to-give-stewardship-campaign kind of sermon because um, the church is often characterized in caricatures uh, as being a place where, oh, we need your money, give money, 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 and people get this turned off with that. So if already you're like, where's the exit? Um, this door is hard to get out, so I don't suggest that way. If you go this way, you're going to end up in the basement. And so if you're running for the exit, go out the back door and then out, out there and you get coffee on your way out. You know, that's fine. But um, we're, we're this... <laughs> But I, honestly, folks, the, the church has got a bad rap when it comes to talking about money. Our Redeemer is all about spiritual practices and growing in faith. We're not trying to talk anybody into giving or obligational giving or anything like that. We want to teach biblical principles about what it means to live a spiritual life. And so we're not trying to do any of that today. Um, but if it makes you feel uncomfortable, I apologize for that in advance. Um, we're just trying to teach um, some faith principles this morning and in the hopes that it can help you grow in your faith. Um, but we're not getting into a stewardship campaign today. Um, that comes later. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, but we're going to look at five, uh, five grace-filled practices of giving, and if it helps you today as we go through the message, you'll find a message notes 
page in your worship folder, and on the back of it, you'll also find the life group guide, which can be used for your personal devotions with your family or anyone else in your friends. This is the sermon-based study guide that we give to all of our small groups to help you take Sunday into Monday that goes with the sermon today or the message today, if that suits your need. How we manage our time and our money is, in fact, one of the most important parts of our life, and it's directly linked to our spiritual growth. In fact, you know, there are, there are more verses in the Bible regarding our finances and our resources than there are about heaven and hell combined. Of the 38-ish, I say 38-ish because depending on who you read and how you count, not like one, two, three, or base 10, base 12, base seven, but like how you count between the gospels, um, the 38 parables told of Jesus, 16 of them are about money. The Bible has fewer than 30 verses about prayer, less than 50 on faith, and over 2,000 verses dealing with wealth and possessions. Which leads me to think that that might have some significance, being a person who likes statistics. But in general, I think that it means that um, money and possessions are a big deal in our life and something that we need to focus on, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel when we gather in a place like this. Several places in Scripture, Jesus is actually referred to as a refining fire. He cleanses and purifies our lives. And he does this work in us so that we can see his image reflected through us. So I want you to notice that one of the reasons God refines us, that this is one of the reasons that God refines us, so that we can give all that we are and all that we have to him with pure motivations in our life. So today we're gonna, we're gonna start in chapter three, verse one. And I'm gonna put it up on the screen here. And I, I'd invite you to read this for me. We're gonna go through all four verses. It's on two slides, so stay with me. But here we go, everybody ready? One, two, three, go. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Then he, the Lord you are seeking, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the... Ah, <laughs> that's just for me right there, the dross. I'll get the last one here. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then... Once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how instead of giving acceptable offerings, the Israelites were giving unacceptable offerings. They were like blemished and diseased animals were being sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem after the temple had been rebuilt and that God was not pleased with these offerings. The people weren't honoring God's name anymore. They weren't respecting who he was. And the goal was to offer acceptable offerings, obviously, to bring their best to God, but they were bringing their worst. My guess is that most of us could honestly use a little bit of refining in our attitudes towards giving God our best. For example, 
We don't give in order to get. If you didn't know that, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we don't give in order to get. We don't give to meet the church's budget. Um, I don't think any on our finance team are here this morning, leadership team member, but so I'm okay with saying that. No one's going to throw anything at me. We don't give so that other people know that we're a part of it, that we're, that we're givers. We give because God has given generously to us. That's, that's the point. Giving is a, a spiritual discipline. We give because we have been blessed and we want to give and bless others. So with that in mind, we're going to skip to Malachi 3.6. Um, where we're going to discover five features of grace-filled giving. And this is where those notes, message notes come in. So if you want to follow along on that, if you're a note taker, um, it is on the back of this sheet here, and there are, for your convenience, five different features of grace-filled giving for you. The first is grace-filled giving refocuses us on God's character. Grace-filled giving refocuses us on God's character. So as we've begun, been learning in Malachi, our view of God, our view of God and how we see God determines everything else about us. It frames what we know and how we, how we act. If we consider God worthy of respect, like if we consider God worthy of our respect, our admiration, it frames how we live. We, we live according to that. If we see God as, as being out to get us, like God is a very wrathful, vengeful God, he's out to get me, he's, he's got his magnifying glass and he's burning ants. If that's how you see God, then that's going to affect how you live in relationship with God. And if we don't think much of God at all, chances are we won't give much at all to advance God's kingdom on earth. So verse 6 actually helps us to refocus a lot. It says, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why your descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. I am the Lord and I don't change. That's why your descendants are not already destroyed. God is speaking in the first person. The word Lord literally means he who is and is referring to his unchangingness, that he's not going to change. He says, I'm the Lord, me, I'm the Lord, and I, not, not me, Tim, but like God is saying this, I'm, I'm the Lord and I don't change. It means he can be counted on to be exactly the same today as he was yesterday, as he is going to be tomorrow, unchanging. And this is something we can put our hope in as people of faith. Because this is one of those solid things of faith that we can have hope in this life that God never changes. He's, a, he's that one constant. When everything else in this world is unconstant, everything else in life can change. Our family dynamic, our career path, everything in our life can change. But the one thing, the one thing that will never change is the reality that God doesn't change. He's that one constant unmoving, unturning, unshifting. Nothing that God has ever said about himself can be modified. All that he is, all that he has been, all that he will be won't change. And I want you to notice that because God doesn't change, we can count on him to keep his covenant with us. Specifically, the unchanging nature of God guarantees his grace. So that's what he's saying in verse 6. That is why your descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. You see, because God could have legitimately like just wipe the table clean and just say, you're all, you're, you're, you're done. Starting over. He did that once before, you know. Something about the rains came down and the floods came up. 
I went to Sunday school as a kid, I'm sorry. <laughs> we got to sing these crazy songs about genocide and mass murder and all this stuff, but made it really catchy with some fun songs. And motions, don't forget the motions. That's another sermon, though. God could have legitimately wiped out all of the descendants of Jacob. But he didn't. He didn't. So let me ask you something. How do you see God? Do you see God as a gracious and merciful father? Or do you see him as this judgmental and harsh person? Because I'm convinced that many of us do not fully understand the depths of God's love. A lot of us, we just don't see it. Because God does not change. We can count on him. Psalm 78, 38 says, Yet he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them at all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. Because God does not change, we can confidently count on three certainties. And here they are. The first, because God doesn't change, his promises never change. Second, his purposes never change. And third, his personality never changes. Because God doesn't change, promises never change, purpose never changes, and personality never changes. Which leads us to the second truth. Because God does not change, God's people can change. That's us. So grace-filled giving helps us to return wholeheartedly to God. The first part of verse 7 is a, is a summary statement of the, the fickleness of the followers of God through the centuries. It says, Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So Malachi is saying that God's people have habitually just, just turned him off and just walked away. See, when our needs are met, this is a simple reality of being people. When our needs are met, we often just respond by saying, I don't need you, God, anymore. You know, we turn away, don't we? Actually, interestingly enough, in the um, late 1700s, John Wesley, um, the founder of the Methodist movement, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, wrote in his journal um, and in some letters to the Americas where the Methodist movement was going strong and the middle class was being formed through this movement in the, in the movement West. He said, be careful, you people of the Americas, not to get too wealthy and too prosperous. Because if you do, you may find yourself not needing God anymore. I find that interesting. Wesley worried about the Americas. When we find our needs being met, we often turn away from God. Instead of keeping God in our front of our vision and honoring him, we, we try to push him out and try to take care of ourselves. It's kind of our own controlling nature we become disobedient and we rebel. And, and we don't always try to rebel, but we, we do. And despite how we live and what we do, God graciously calls us back. He graciously calls us with those words. He says, return to me and I am going to return to you. Return to me and I'm going to return to you. I like how James, the epistle James, says, says it in 4.8. He says, come close to God and God will draw close to you. It's going to come close to you. These people that Malachi is addressing are not asking for some practical ways that they can step up spiritually because this is the sixth time in the book 
that they've responded like smart Alex or smart blanks because they, they, they don't see it in themselves. Sometimes we don't see it in ourselves when we're, when we're messing up or screwing up in our lives. And they respond, because God's saying, draw close to me, and I'm gonna draw close to you. And this is what they said. They said, how can we return when we haven't even gone, our, gone the wrong way? So God says, draw close to me, and I'm gonna draw close to you. And the people in Malachi say, but you, but you how, why? We haven't done anything wrong. It wasn't me. They don't think they've done anything wrong, and how can they come back if they've never left? How can they repent if they're not guilty of any sin or self-perceived sin? So let me suggest two things that we can do if we, um, if we find ourselves in a place of wrong like that. First step is we have to ask how we got to where we are, kind of like the prodigal son did in that, in that uh, parable that Jesus told when he was in the pig pen, and he said, you know what? How did I get to this place in my life? How did I end up here? We have to ask that question. How did I get here? Because it's important that we admit that we went the wrong way, that we, we strayed from the path that we were supposed to be on. Because the reality is most of the time when we stray from God's path, it's a slow fade. It's a slow process. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to just say, God, I love you, but... I'm going this way, all the way back turned, cold-shouldered, and I'm just going to just do my thing, and you do your thing, and I'm all the way out, and just diving off the deep end. Most of us just kind of take this little small step at a time, this slow act of rebellion. The other day, um, actually last night, uh, my oldest son and my mother and I were having a short conversation um, about a, a family friend who was still suffering, even though they were in, in their 60s, of things that had happened as teenagers, a reputation that had followed their family because of decisions that they had made in high school and just after high school, and how those dynamics and those choices can follow you throughout your lifetime. And the reality is, is that small choices made consistently over time can dramatically affect your life. How did we get here? That's the first question. Second step is to step back and ask, how do I get home from here? What do I have to do to get back? The third grace-filled point is grace-filled giving moves us to realize the importance of giving. Verse 8 of chapter 3 says, should people cheat God? This is God asking. It's kind of sarcasm, you know, which is kind of funny that God speaks kind of, Redundant question, or, you know, redundant question, sarcasm. Should people cheat God? Yet you cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. The word cheat means to forcibly take, of course, in this context. And people did like that accusations. Would you like God saying, you cheated me? No, of course not. I wouldn't. You wouldn't. No one would like to be called that by God. But God says that they are robbing him of what was due him as a way to recognize God's rightful ownership of all things. God's people in the Old Testament were instructed to give tithes and offerings, which are two different things, a tithe and an offering. Tithe, of course, is the 10% thing. And while some would say that this teaching is based on the law of the Old Testament, um, I, I would remind you that 
that um, Abraham gave 10% 400 years before the law was written as he gave 10% of his wealth to the priest Melchizedek. So tithing goes back before the law. But let's, let's look at this, this first part. Bring your, bring your tithes into the storehouse and there will be enough in my food in my temple. The storehouse, this is from um, Deuteronomy. The storehouse was a chamber in the temple where the tithes and offerings were kept. So I want to summarize just a couple of statements about this, this um, tithing thing just to clear it up for a minute for us today. The first thing is we are no longer under the law of the Old Testament. Okay? because we live under the new covenant with Christ. And so tithing is not mandatory to us by Old Testament law. But tithing is a good biblical benchmark for believers. In other words, that means that it's a place for us to start. It's sort of like a minimum guide for giving. It's a yardstick that we use to measure ourselves. Second, it's easy to tithe and yet miss out on what's really important about it. Jesus took, on the, took the Pharisees to task because they did, they, not because they tithe, didn't tithe, but because they had become so legalistic that they no longer cared about their love for God or their love for neighbor. You know, God looks at the heart and not at the hands. He, he focuses on the giver and not on the gift because our attitude is more important than the amount that we give. And the third thing is that the practice of tithing is a good reminder of who's in charge of our lives. When we give at least 10%, it's a way of being reminded that God owns, God owns everything that we have anyways. I had a pastor of a church plant that I worked in once that said to me when I asked him, why am I supposed to give 10% because I didn't want to? Um, he said, Tim, if you can't make it on 90%, then you're not going to make it on 100% anyways. And he was right because I overspent every dime I made anyways. But it's not about the percentage. God wants what the money represents. And that money represented my heart. When giving to God, we're just taking our hands off what belongs to him in the first place. And our use of money shows what we think of God because giving is a thermometer of our love. Uh, an author once wrote, it's not so much what you have, but rather what has you that makes the difference. So, when ultimately when we give, we're saying that we trust God to take care of our needs. So let's move on to point number four. Grace-filled giving is about relinquishing our control and trusting God. Here's another way to say it. We give, when we give at least 10% of our income to God, we're saying that we trust him to enable us to live on the other 90%. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6. He said, the kingdom of God, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and God will give you everything you need. Researcher Sullivan Ronsonville said, after studying giving patterns among Christians, concluded by saying, if you want to know what we've learned in 25 words or less, Give us struggle. Giving is a struggle because we don't love God as much as we love a lot of other stuff. Which is true, I believe. Malachi 3.10 is the only place in the Bible where God tells us to test him. He says, to test mean, to test him. He says, test me on this. And that's not some prosperity gospel garbage. That is just that when we give, 
when we test God, we're actually testing ourselves. Do we trust? Do we believe that God is who he says he is? And the fifth and final point is that grace-filled giving rejoices in God's blessing. I want you to look with me at this last point from verses 10 through 12, which says, I will open up the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will be blessed, for your hand, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. When I talk to people who have discovered the joy that comes in giving generously to God, more specifically from tithing, I hear words like, it works, joy, God is faithful, blessing. We've never gone without. It makes me sorry for those who don't fully understand what it means and what it's like or what they're missing. Corey Tenboom put it this way, the measure of a life is, is not its duration, but its donation. I always like that quote. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 shed some additional insight onto how God rewards those who honor him. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with all the best parts of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats with overflow with good wine. And that's not, again, prosperity gospel, but more the disposition of a faithful servant. Blessings come to those who tithe. And amazingly, Malachi 3.11 states that God will even keep certain bad things from happening when we give first to him. When we align our lives with God's plan. When we give, we put ourselves in a position to trust. To trust God and that God will meet our needs. And in addition, God sees that from a global perspective, all things fall into line. And I wonder... How do you do with giving in your life? And I'm not talking about giving to the church. I mean just wholehearted generosity. How generous are you with your, with your money, with your time, with your commitments? It goes beyond finances. It, it goes right to the core of servanthood, to self-sacrifice, to giving time to the person who walks by you on the street, to the little commitments of Advent House, of sandwiches, when they need to be made, to being an usher or a greeter, even in the church, or downtown chamber of commerce, something's going on, to the community that you live in, to the neighborhood when someone new moves to town, to welcoming them. How generous are you in all of the things that are truly important in your life? Because as people of faith, it's not just what we do in here, it's about what we do in the world, and that's what's really important. This is just a, a building. It makes no difference. What truly matters is what you do with your life outside of this place. That's the standard by which you'll be measured, and that's what's important. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless each of one of us here as we move from this place, that you would work in our lives, that that you would help us to become grace-filled givers in all the ways that you have called us to give. 
of our lives, of our hearts, of our love, of our gifts, every talent that we have, that we would be instruments of your love and your peace in this world, that people would come to experience you through our lives. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.